If you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, Luke 2, and we'll pick up in verse 21, we are actually going to finish chapter 2. And the reason we're going to finish it is because here in Luke's gospel, we actually have the only record found in the Bible of the early life of Jesus. Matthew records just a very tiny snippet as Mary and Joseph take Jesus down to Egypt for a period of time to protect him from the rage of Herod the Great. Um, John does not mention the childhood. Mark does not mention the childhood of Jesus. And so this is the only record that we have in all of the Bible about those very early years of Jesus's life. And it begins with his dedication in the temple and it ends with him being a teenager uh, and sitting in, in the temple there in Jerusalem and then ultimately heading home to live out his early life in Nazareth. And so would you join me? We'll pray and we'll pick up here in verse 21 in Luke 2. Father, we are so grateful for this record. As simple as it is, it is the, the beauty uh, of who you, Jesus, were as, as a young child, as a man, growing up in a little tiny town in the foothills of Galilee. And we pray that you would bless us as we read and study your word, would we glean truth, Lord, available in our lives to help us to grow into the image of you. And so bless us as we study together, in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 21, and when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus. And remember that is Yahweh is salvation. It's what the name means. It's Yehoshua or Joshua would be another way to say that. Jesus being the Greek rendition of that. And the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed... They brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And as it was written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy unto the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. And so first we have Jesus the baby. So if you want to look at this, it's going to be broken down into three parts. First, we have Jesus as a baby. And it is interesting to me that the very first experience recorded about Jesus' life while he's here on this earth is one of pain. The very first thing that happens to him is painful. The very first thing that happens to him that's recorded in Scripture is the same thing that would have happened to countless hundreds of thousands, millions of Jewish boys, baby boys. Because in every way, shape, or form, Jesus was a man. He was human. He was 100% human. Uh, his, his only difference between you and I is that he was born of a virgin. He, he carried not into this world the sin nature from Adam. It's the reason that when we get to the genealogy that we find here in Luke's gospel, we'll be taken all the way back to that place. But Jesus experienced everything from start to finish, that any human child would, would experience. And I think this is important for us, because if Jesus is not man, then he cannot identify with us. And if he is not fully God, then he cannot pay the price for us. He must be both. 
This passage is interesting to me because as he is named, the angel says, you shall call him. Uh, Scripture further reminds us there is Isaiah 7 declared uh, that he would be Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us. The names that Jesus has while he's here on this earth, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, are all indicative of him being Messiah, Christos, the promised one, the one that the Jewish people were looking for. And so in this very simple statement about his early years, we find him going and being fully introduced into Judaism. And we're going to see that that immersion continues throughout the entirety of his life. That's why when Jesus spoke to the rabbis, when he spoke to the Sanhedrin, when he spoke to the Pharisees, he was fully capable, even in his humanness, of understanding what it meant to go to yeshiva, to Hebrew school, to study the Torah, to know what the Mishnah was, to to know that the Tanakh was the totality of what we call the Old Testament. Jesus was introduced to all things human with regard to being Jewish. Uh, And so we find this simple thing that happens. Mary takes him to the temple. Now, this is really an interesting thing. And, And in order to understand it, if you understand what the word says about this particular sacrifice that is actually found in Leviticus chapter 12, you're going to see that this sacrifice has nothing to do with Jesus. It has everything to do with Mary. And so Mosaic law required many duties, all kinds of ceremonies that, that took place at the birth of the child. And that firstborn child, if it was going to be Jewish, had to be redeemed. The price there would be five shekels of the of the temple coinage. And so the child would be brought to the temple. And it was essentially saying, we want this child paid for, brought into, redeemed as the children of Israel. And so Jesus was redeemed even as a child Uh, of the Israelites. So he was fully Jewish in that sense. Sometimes we forget that. You know, we kind of have a tendency uh, to make Jesus almost a Gentile at times. He was Jewish start to finish. Our our Savior was uh, was of the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so why did this happen? The law prescribes several things, and in fact, the law mentions five different times uh, why this should happen, that that you would take your children uh, into the temple to identify them as being redeemed. But it goes on further to state that Mary had ended this time to where uh, the birth of the child had made her ceremonially unclean. And so roughly a month later... What had to happen was you had to be cleansed. So for those who believe that Mary was without sin herself, you have a real tough problem with this passage because she is going to go as an unclean person to the temple to be cleansed. If she was without sin, this whole passage would be completely unnecessary. Because there in Leviticus, it required an offering for the mother, not the son. 
And so she's making that offering of, of these two doves, which was the offering of a poor family. If one was rich, you, you would bring a ram, you would bring a goat. If one was poor, you would bring two doves or two turtle doves. Possibly pigeons would be another way for us to understand it. But because she was a sinner and because she did need a savior herself, by right of Jewish law, she was unclean. She could not possibly be unclean if she was already holy. She was not any more holy than you or I in that sense. She was fully human and she herself needed a savior. And so that's the reason for this tax that's going to be paid. And here's the interesting thing about this tax. The reason it was two doves or two pigeons, one was the sin offering. The other was the burnt offering. The sin offering symbolically transferred all of the sinner's guilt to the substitute. In other words, my guilt in Christ Jesus is transferred to him. I'm guilty before a holy God. Jesus fully took my guilt. The second dove is the burnt offering, which symbolically transfers all of the virtue of the substitute to the sinner. So when we say we have been justified by the blood of the lamb, it accomplishes both the sin offering and the burnt offering. Jesus is my sin offering. He, he's made me righteous. And in that sense, his righteousness is transferred to me. This offering is Mary saying, I'm a sinner. I need to be cleansed. And I need the righteousness of God put in its place. And so it's a very important passage in that sense. Because it leaves Mary, as scripture says she is, in need of a savior herself. Was she unique among all women? Absolutely. Was she blessed of all the women of the earth? Absolutely. Was she herself God and part of the redemption process? Absolutely not. She needed a savior too. And so the offering was made for her according to the law in accordance with her need of salvation. The next thing we see are some proclamations about Jesus in the temple. This passage, as we look at it, we'll pick up in verse 25, presents the prophet Simeon, and then we'll move on to the prophetess Anna. And so we have some pictures here of how Jesus is first understood uh, in our world. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose, na whose name was Simeon. This man was just and devout. And notice what he was waiting for. The consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Notice it's very clear here that the Holy Spirit was not yet in him because the Holy Spirit wasn't available to be in anyone until Jesus actually paid the price for our sin. That is when the indwelling of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit being inside of every believer came about. The Holy Spirit was upon or around is another way to look at that nearby Simeon, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, and that was the work of the Holy Spirit in the world from the beginning. The Holy Spirit was in this world, would rest upon people, would encourage truth to be made known to people. 
that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Before the promised one. He was waiting for a way to Israel, for Israel to be made right. Now notice he's in the temple. He's deeply embedded in Jewish culture. And he himself is a priest. So he understood the temple sacrifices. He understood why the sanctuary of the Lord was divided into two major compartments. The holy place where the priest would always go. Where they would tend to the showbread and tend to the altar of incense and tend to the giant candelabra, the menorah. But inside of the holy of holies, a veil separating them. No priest could go save on one day, and that was only the high priest on the day of atonement where he would offer up for the sins of the nation and for himself. And so this man, Simeon, understood precisely what Judaism taught, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Waiting for Israel to be made right. He knew that they knew God. He knew that they understood God's character and nature. He knew that they knew how to relate to God in some ways. But he knew something was missing. And so he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law... So you can see Jesus is being brought like every uh, baby boy to his bris ceremony. He was going to be circumcised on the eighth day, exactly as the Apostle Paul said he was. And took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. I love this. Now I can die. I know who this baby is. According to your word, for my eyes have seen, look what he says, your salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for the face of all peoples. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. Now imagine a Jewish priest saying that the salvation of the Lord, the consolation of the Lord, is going to come to the Gentiles, and he mentions the Gentiles first. He understood fully exactly what was going to happen as Jesus grew into a young boy and then into a man and then finally would give his life on Calvary's cross. He understood that the Jewish people would reject him. Why? Because the Old Testament said so. The Old Testament prophesied very clearly that there would be a rejection of Messiah. That they wouldn't get it at first. But he would still be the consolation. He would be the only way for anyone to be reconciled to God. Simeon knew this. And the glory of your people, Israel... That day of glory is still coming. It's one of the wonderful things that we're studying right now in the book of Daniel on Sunday nights and Isaiah on Thursday nights. Is the coming consolation when Israel finally sees Messiah. That, that wave that's sweeping through the land of Israel today. People wondering, you know, who, who is this Christian Savior? And many are coming to that place of recognizing Messiah. One day, 
All Israel is going to see that absolute beautiful picture of the one whom they pierced being the Savior. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, the child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Again, very interesting words, the fall. Now you know why Jesus was also called the stumbling stone. Now you know why the world is trembled at Jerusalem. The prophetic word of God declares that Jesus would be a stumbling stone, that he would cause actually some to fall. But because he was revealed and they knew him not, because as he descended down the Palm Sunday road, down the Mount of Olives and stopped, and there's this withered fig tree and he looks across at the Temple Mount and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets, If you'd only known the time of my visitation and how I desired you to gather you unto myself, but you would not. It's this beautiful picture of of the totality of the package, if you will, and the rising of many. Let's be real clear. The church, the Christian church, was a Jewish church at its foundation. A vast majority of the the original Christians were Jewish. Some got it. And without that foundational Jewishness, there would be no Gentile church. We owe a great debt to Israel because of it. Those, Those apostles paid for the truth of the gospel with their very lives. It cost them everything. And so you and I are direct recipients of that blessing. And for a sign which will be spoken against, and probably in quotation or italics in some of your Bibles, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. As Mary is holding Jesus... There's going to be a day when she's also going to be standing, seeing her own son put to death on Calvary's cross. That is a sword to every mother's soul, especially the mother of Jesus. Because she spent her whole life with him. She knew there was no wickedness in him, no sin in him. She knew he was different than all other boys. And that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And so as you look at this consolation, Simeon would actually, in AD 13, become president of the Sanhedrin. And so that's the religious court that would try things uh, from a Jewish perspective according to the law. So if you were found guilty of, say, uh, adultery or thievery or something that was covered under the law, you would go to court literally in the temple. And the Sanhedrin, this this group of 70 plus the high priest and his assistant, 72 in total, would hear the case. They would try the case. And then according to the law, they would make a decision on, on the outcome. And interestingly enough, Simeon's name means hearing. It would be the, his hearing that would focus on our hearing. There is Romans 10.1 says... 
actually 10.17, that faith uh, comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so Simeon heard, he understood, and he also understood how impossible the law itself was to keep. One of the things that's always an amazement to us as Gentiles, uh, and it didn't matter whether you grew up under the tutelage of Rabbi Hillel or Paul's tutor Gamaliel, no, no matter who was teaching Judaism, by the time you journeyed through the Torah, the first five books, something would strike you. And that is, praise God for the Day of Atonement. Without that moment when a sacrifice was offered up for all of Israel and for the high priest himself, all of these things became impossible. And by the time of the, of the end of the age of the writing of the Mishnah Torah, these commentaries, oral traditions on the Torah itself, by the time that is finished being authored, the Jewish rabbis had come to conclusions about what the law taught and going from what the Bible actually says to some 613 individual laws and commands that needed to be attended to precisely by every Jewish person. That's why we're thankful for the grace of God. Because most of us in this room will not be successful at the original Ten Commandments. And will probably fail at the first one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Because each one of us worships occasionally at some other altar. Maybe it's the altar of anger or the altar of unforgiveness or the altar of materialism or the altar of another god. Many of us have searched out other paths to try and know God. I was talking a couple of weeks ago uh, with, a, with a dear gentleman who had spent most of his whole adult life basically going through the world religions trying to find out which one was the best. And you know what happened? He came to the conclusion that none of them provided a path to God. Why? Because they all had requirements that no one could keep. That's what makes God's grace amazing. Amen? It's a free gift to all who will ask. It's not incumbent upon you. It's incumbent upon God. It happens because he first loved us and has given us the ability to have faith to believe. Uh, and so this passage as it unwraps uh, this, this beautiful man, Simeon, he has an incomplete Bible. He has an incomplete revelation. He's got the Old Testament in its entirety. But as he reads it, he's left with questions. And that's why he's still looking for the consolation. That's why he's gazing at the future Messiah who would come. That's why he wants to know this one who is the coming one. That's the one that that place setting is left empty at every Passover table as they wait for the Elijah who is to come. That's for Messiah. And he's saying, my eyes have seen Messiah. This is the one. This is Yehoshua. Yahweh, who is salvation. And so he declares that. And now he can depart in peace. It's a very kind way of saying, I'm ready to die now. I can go home to be with the Lord. I've seen him and I believe who he is. 
And he focuses in on exactly what Isaiah said, that this one would be a light unto the Gentiles. This one who would come and offer up his own life to to bring us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. But the process would bring stumbling to many. Can I tell you that to this day, Jesus' name, I was watching part of the football game yesterday, and you know, it's kind of nice to know what's going on the field, except when it picks up things you don't really want to hear. And many of us have gotten pretty adept at lip reading. And it's amazing how many times people still use the name of our Savior in vain. They use him as a curse word. And to the Jewish people, to some degree, Jesus is a curse word. It's one of the reasons when we traveled to Israel, they were very careful about how we say what we say. The the gospel has been preached in Israel for 2,000 years. It's not for lack of the gospel going out. It's that the gospel is a stumbling stone because it's about Jesus. And his name is still a byword. Christians, in that sense, are still a problem for the Jewish people. Oh, they love that we come and tour and, frankly, spend our money. They they love that, but they really don't want to hear what we have to say about Jesus. That is still a stumbling block. That's still a stone that they trip over. The next excuse me, the next thing we see is the prophetess Anna. Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, who was of great age. She had lived with her husband for seven years from her virginity. So she was probably still 20 or so. As crazy as it may seem to you, not at all uncommon for girls to be married at 13, 14, 15 years old. So she was in her early 20s at the most when she was a widow. And this woman, a widow of about 84 years, and the text seems to indicate she was actually a widow for 84 years. So she is well over 100 years old. And she has been a widow for 84 years of those hundred or so years. Who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke to him of all those who looked for the redemption in Jerusalem. Here's this aged woman who's believing the same thing that Simeon believed. This this testimony first of the shepherds. And then of Simeon, and finally of Anna, this cord, where where this woman who faithfully sat in the court of women for 84 years, telling people about Messiah. I guarantee you that was not an easy thing to do. We travel with us to Israel. We'll we'll be uh, in the Jewish quarter uh, of the old city. Uh, and you strike up a conversation about politics. If you mention our current president, President Trump's name, you'll probably get some flowers. And, and again, I am grateful to our president for moving our embassy to Jerusalem. That's where it belongs. But if you mention Jesus, you talk about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, 
you're going to get a whole different level of reception that's not going to be good. You'll be shunned. You may be sworn at. You will certainly be dodged as a Gentile. If you're walking the streets of Jerusalem and a, a clearly orthodox group of men comes walking by, they will literally get out of the way so they don't get too close to you because you are unclean as a Gentile. And they can spot us. I don't know what it is. It's probably the fact that we have a baseball cap and they're wearing a round bowler. I don't know. No yarmulke or something. But Anna was also waiting for this good news. Great joy. And then finally, this passage concludes with Jesus, the young man, the young boy. First, where he lived and so when they had performed all things according to the law of the lord they returned to galilee to their own city nazareth now again remind yourself they're walking it's 65 miles it's not next door they would have crossed over the judean foothills directly to the north of the city of jerusalem uh, if they went slightly to the west, they would have crossed the plains of Sharon through the valley, directly at the base of Mount Carmel. They would have come to the top of the Carmel Ridge, gazed down into the Jezreel Valley, the Valley of Megiddo, possibly gone past the city of Megiddo itself. They would have then traveled across the Jezreel Valley to Nazareth. This is a long journey, three, four days at the very least, more than likely a week. But here they are, they're, they're setting out on this journey. They've gone home. And the child grew, Jesus grew, and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. First we see the place, his hometown, Nazareth. A little dusty hole in the wall. And it's so important for us to, to understand it. And again, one of the beauties of actually going and traveling through the land as we stop along all of these places and you can you can track the journey in your in your mind you can see it when you get to nazareth this little nestled place in the foothills above the sea of galilee and then just a couple of miles down the road is cana cana of galilee and about five miles from there is magdala the home of mary magdalene at the edge of the sea of galilee Three miles to the south is Tiberias. A couple more miles to the east and you'd come to Tabka. This cove where Jesus preaches this message. They're on their way to where Jesus lived. Where he grew up. Where he undoubtedly with his brothers and, and or his sisters, probably both. Threw rocks at the Hyraxes that sun themselves during the day it's what little boys do undoubtedly they had to go fetch water undoubtedly he worked in his father's carpenter's shop again remind yourself what you're reading is all we actually know about the early life of jesus that was the place what was the plan he grew strong in the spirit and the grace of God was upon him. From a very early age, people could see there was something different about Jesus. Nobody knew exactly what. 
because the time of his revelation had not yet come. We'll get to that shortly. But Jesus went through everything you've gone through. Jesus grew up a young boy in Nazareth. He worked in his father's carpenter shop. You know, sometimes I'll sit and talk with young people. And, you know, what do you think? Well, if I'd been Jesus, I wouldn't actually worked at all. I'd have waited for everybody to leave, and I would just wave my hand, and the furniture would have gotten made. (laughs) Jesus made furniture. Jesus put together mangers like what he was born in. Jesus made doors for buildings. No doubt Jesus' hands were rough. They were blistered. Jesus was in every way, shape, or form uh, a normal young man, except that he was also God. That's the beauty of it. He's got to be our substitute, amen? So he, he has to be exactly like us and also fully God. Because if either part is missing, if he's not us, then he can't die in our place. And if he's not God, he's not righteous. He must be both. We call that the hypostatic union. We can't understand it because it requires 100% of two natures. And typically when you add 100% to 100%, you get 200%. You can't have 200% and have it be one thing. But in Christ, you can. He's 100% man and 100% God. What did he love? Verse 41, and I think we can make it. His parents, I love this. This is one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. It's very simple. Because you can substitute yourself and add in Walmart. And you can imagine the terror of Mary and Joseph. And his parents went to Jerusalem every year. Notice this, very Jewish setting. For the feast of Passover. It was mandatory. If you were an able-bodied male Jewish man, you went to Jerusalem. If you could make it, you went. Again, it's 65 miles. It's on foot. There's no Motel 6. There's no motels. There's some inns. Jerusalem was horrifically crowded. And and several generations after Jesus was on this earth... Some of the totals of sheep that were slaughtered on Passover exceeded 200,000. Now, you could do one for 10. So you're talking about 2 million people, maybe, during the the time of Passover around the city of Jerusalem. The population today is only about 900,000. So it was packed with people. This was an arduous journey, and you're dragging your kids they didn't have a station wagon where you could, you know, mark a line on the seat and say, stay away from your brother. <laughs> and he was 12 years old. So he's gone from an infant to 12 years old. And they went to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. And when they had finished the days, they returned. And the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. Now, this is bad parenting 101 right here. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company. Now, I don't know what was going on in their family dynamics. I don't know whether they had a bunch of kids. They were traveling in a group. But they somehow misplaced Jesus. Imagine going to Disneyland. You've got five kids when you arrive, four kids when you go home, and you get a third of the way home and you go, what did we do with Austin? Where is he? 
supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey. <laughs> They're all, honey, one, where's number five? They went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances, so it does appear that they were in a group. And so when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now I want you to notice bad parenting step two. And so it was after three days they found him in the temple. Now I'm pretty sure they knew something was different about their boy. And so they're looking all over Jerusalem for him. But the one place where you would know that he's likely to be, they don't go there and they spend three days looking everywhere else. Sitting in the midst of teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. And so when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? We almost were dead here. What is wrong with you? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. You you can see Messiah starting to be unveiled right here. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? He's a a tween. You you can almost imagine your your teenage, your tween going, but Jesus didn't do that. He was basically saying, Mom, didn't an angel announce my birth? Dad, don't you remember that I'm actually not your biologic son? Do you not remember the angels? Do you not remember the magi? Do you not remember the shepherds? Do you not remember who I am? This is such a beautiful picture of your humanity and mine and divinity coming together. This is what happens. Your humanness goes, what are you doing? And Jesus says, I'm doing what I've always done. I'm God. You know that I must be about my father's business, but they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. And you can see him really in his, in his father's building in his father's house you can see him about his father's business because his father's house is the dwelling place of god most high his father's house is not a carpenter shop in nazareth he says i must be about my father's business and and i've always wondered to pierce the heart of poor joseph you know he had a rough job Sometimes we, we kind of focus in on Mary and the birth and, you know, raising my son as Messiah. How'd you like that one, ladies? You know, yeah, go talk to my son. He framed the universe with the word of his mouth, you know, kind of thing. But how about poor Joseph? Because he knew that this really was not technically his son. It's his son by adoption. That he surely did. But he says, look, my father's building is the house of the Lord. 
And that's where he was found. And his father's business was about the word of the Lord. And that's what he was doing. And the, the last two verses, you see this time as we see it unfold uh, in, in real time. You know, the story authored by Luke probably uh, at, at least 20 years after the ascension of Jesus to heaven. As we see this story unfold, Jesus had always been about his father's business. Jesus was always found in his father's house, his real father's house. But he was learning something. And when he sat down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them, imagine that. The creator God subject to his own human parents whom were part of his creation. So the word submission is not a bad word in that context. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Everyone liked Jesus. You know, sometimes I think that we, we sometimes overestimate the amount of original aversion to Jesus. I think in the community of Nazareth, people loved him. There was no guile in him. He was this incredibly gifted child. He was this wonderful teenager. And he advanced in favor with his fellow man. And again, we have a picture here of Jesus the man and Jesus as God. As a man, he grew up and learned things like everybody else. He had a computer called a brain just like you have. He was capable of understanding carpentry uh, from his father. When he ate, he understood that he liked certain things and didn't like other things. We don't know what those things were. We know that he got tired. We know that he got hungry. All of the human things that you go through. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head. He knew what it was like to be homeless. That's our Jesus. And that, friends, is all we know about the young boy and the early life of Jesus. Amen? Would you stand? Amen. Would you stand and we'll pray. And again, I encourage you, came today. Today's kind of a narrative a Bible study, but I know that some of you may have some prayer needs, and so we have a prayer team in our prayer room ready and available. If you don't know the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, you don't know the God-man, uh, the gospel is available, and, and we have many that would love to share that with you. But for us, yeah, just rejoice in who Jesus is. These passages should encourage you that he does know exactly what you're going through. He was in all ways tested as you are and yet without sin. He knows what it's like to smack his thumb with a hammer and keep it clean. Amen? He knows what it's like to be hungry and then get fed a meal that's like, ooh, that tastes like uh, reused chutney. That's, that's our God. That's who he is. He knows these things at a practical level. He, he knows how you hurt. He knows what bugs you. He can identify in all ways. 
And I think that's why this story is here. Father, thank you for humanizing your son. Jesus, thank you for enduring all of life for our sakes, going through the headaches of being a child and a teenager and a young adult, Lord, how it must have been so difficult for you being God and man simultaneously to allow people to poke fun at you and Lord, to call you names, and you did nothing. You reviled not in return. Lord, you were kind to everyone and gentle to all you met. And so, God, we thank you for this beautiful picture of your son Jesus and his humanness. And we pray that that would stick with us, remind us of of who we are in you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen.